Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UJ podcast, brought to you, of course, by our great friends at Alumni Hall. Like, I'm sure it's the case for most of you guys out there, my entire wardrobe essentially consists of Georgia gear, and I've gotten stuff over the years from really every retailer imaginable. I think at this point, it's fair to say I am a a fairly experienced connoisseur of all things Georgia gear. And I'm just here to tell you guys, straight up, hands down, Alumni Hall has the best selection of George gear that you're going to find anywhere. Trust me, I've tried them all, guys. Name it, I've tried them. And quite simply, Alumni Hall is the standard. So do yourself a favor. When you're in the market for some George gear, make sure to stop in at Alumni Hall here in Athens inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center or online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. But all right, guys, here's the deal today. Our recording schedule is fully planned. It's fully booked, man, all the way out through week one. And really, if it's planned all the way through week one, it's planned all the way through the end of the season because we know exactly what we're going to be doing each and every week during the season. We've got to, we're going to have our game recap episodes. We're going to have our mailbag episodes. We're going to have our game preview episodes, and we're going to have our picks of the week. So we are booked, man. We are booked all the way really through December. And that's nothing out of the ordinary. We typically have our entire summer planned out this time of year. But after the show on Wednesday, when Curtis and I got done recording and I uploaded the episode, I went back and I just pulled up the schedule. It was kind of just going through it, looking at each week, looking at each episode. And I realized, man, all right, well, we don't really have any mailbag episodes all the way into like the week before the season. We just have so much content that we want to get to, so many topics that we want to cover, that we want to have fun with. We kind of just left out the mailbag episodes, and I didn't realize we had done that when we were making the schedule, so that's kind of crazy. We take pride in this podcast being of, by, and for the people, and I simply could not stand for that. I can't stand for us going a month and a half or so without a mailbag episode. That's crazy. So I decided to carve out one day here for me to answer some of your mailbag questions before we get too deep into the grind of preview season. We started that already this week. Before we get too deep into it, I want to go ahead and at least open up the mailbag for one day here and try to get through as many of them as I can because we always want to make sure you guys have a voice here in the podcast. That's very, very important to us. We know that this podcast would not be here if it was not for all of you guys. We are so appreciative of all your support. Many of you have been here for almost a decade, man. That's crazy. Some of you guys have been here from the very beginning. You know who you are. We love you guys. We love all of you. And and to show how much we appreciate that, we try to make this show as listener friendly and as interactive as we can. I know we can always do better, but we we try to give you guys as much of a voice on this show as we possibly can. So I I really didn't like that we were going to go like a month and a half without a mailbag episode. So we got to change that, right? So that's what we're doing here today. But you know, if we're going to run a mailbag episode here, I need you guys to bring the heat. 
And dude, did you ever. We have some awesome mailbag questions today. I'm excited to dive into them. So let's go ahead and do exactly that. And the first question, this is a question that, you know, we've gotten this several times. I mean, God, I don't know, like 20, 30 times over the past couple of weeks since the AJ, the most recent AJC articles have come out. We've had a lot of people asking us what our opinions are. And if you haven't noticed, which I mean, I'm sure you have, I have been intentionally silent on the AJC issue. That has very much been by design. Now, I know that seems kind of counterintuitive because, hey, man, you run a Georgia podcast. This is a huge topic in the world of Georgia athletics. So why are you staying silent on this? Why, why aren't you commenting on it? Why aren't you, why aren't you sharing your thoughts? So first, let me address that. Let me kind of share my thought process with you on why it's been a couple of weeks and you have heard absolutely nothing from me. It's been crickets here on the Glory UGA podcast. It really comes down to this for me. I simply did not want to give the Atlanta Journal-Constitution any more oxygen than they were already getting. My general position has been the more that we talk about it, the more fired up we get about it, the louder we scream about it, the more attention they get, the more traction they get, the longer the story stays alive. I've basically just felt like if we discuss it, we're giving them exactly what they want. And I am not a powerful person. I know my place in the world. I am a nobody. I am a nothing. I understand that. I'm just a guy. I'm just a bald guy who loves the Georgia Bulldogs and loves his wife. But even though I might not have that much power, I still have a little power. However minuscule it might be, I have some power over outlets like the AJC. And the only power I have over them is to deprive them of what they want, the attention, the oxygen that they are craving. I have the power to not consume their content, to not fund them by clicking on their links and listening to their podcasts. Again, I'm just one guy. Whether I click on their links, whether I listen to their podcast, it doesn't matter. I'm just one number, right? I'm one of millions and millions of numbers out there. But if collectively the Bulldog Nation decides, you know what, we've had enough, we're just not going to consume this content, well, that's that's how you hurt them. That's how you shut them up. You just stop listening. You stop giving them attention. You stop giving them clicks. Because when that starts to affect their bottom line, that's when they'll start to back off. The, they're not going to back off because we scream, because we demand it, because we say you're being unfair. Like that's They don't care. That doesn't matter to them. What matters to them is the bottom line. So my general position has basically been, I don't want to feed into it. The silent treatment, so to speak. But at this point, what I've kind of come to realize is that people are either going to read it or they're not. Like Either people have already read these, these stories or they're just never going to read them. So whether we discuss it or not on this podcast, it's not really going to have any bearing on whether or not people are clicking on their articles. Just people have already heard it. I'm not breaking news here. It was like, it'd be one thing if I was the first guy to tell you, oh my God, did you see the new article the AJC just released? Because that might send people to go over there and click it. And I'd be like, please don't do that. So long story short, I'm basically at the point right now where I realize that whether I talk about it or not is going to have no bearing on the story whatsoever. So why not go ahead and talk about it? Because you guys want me to talk about it. So that brings me to our first question here. And our first question is from Christopher. And guys, we had a ton of questions about the AJC and this story and how they're treating Georgia. Christopher was the most recent one. I just happened to see that one and uh, just put it on here. So I'm not trying to play favorites, I promise you. I know a lot of you sent these questions in, but they all basically were saying more or less the same thing. So Christopher says that he feels like the AJC is out to paint Georgia's football team and Coach Smart in a negative light. Why do you think that is? 
Christopher, it's a hell of a question, man. There's a lot of angles to look at this AJC situation. This is the one that I have spent the most time thinking about. I know what I think about the story, and I know what I think about the investigative journalism piece. Like, dude, come on. It was an editorial. Let's be real. I know what I think about all that stuff. The bigger question to me is why? Like, why are they clear? Like, I agree with you, Christopher. They are clearly, clearly dead set on trying to destroy the University of Georgia's football program, if not the entire athletic department at large. Maybe the entire university. I don't know. Clearly, that's what they're going for here. But why? Like, what is in it for them? And the more I think about it, I've boiled it down to two things, really. I think the obvious one is money, right? The AJC, we all know. Like, we, we all know what direction all newspapers have gone in this, in this country. Like, they're a dying breed. They're barely hanging on for your dear life. They're on life support. We know this. I honestly cannot tell you the last time I've read an AJC article. And that includes Dog Nation. I guess I have for a long time felt the AJC was no friend to the University of Georgia. Look, I, I understand the role of media. I, I'm a strong advocate of the media doing its job and holding the powerful accountable. Absolutely. If we have legitimate issues with protecting sexual assaulters and covering up sexual assault, those issues need to be investigated and they need to be made public and they need to be addressed. The issue here with the AJC is that they have provided absolutely no evidence whatsoever of any sort of sexual assault and any sort of cover-up of sexual assault. In fact, they have been exceedingly misleading and they have sensationalized a lot of a lot of information that really doesn't amount to a whole lot, if anything at all. But money is the driving factor behind this, in my opinion. These companies like the AJC, these newspapers, they are dying. They need money. How do they get money? They get clicks. How do they get clicks? The same way that all those trolls on social media do, by goading passionate people into reactions. That, that's what they are, guys. They are no better than an internet troll. Like Alan Judd, that's who. That's what this guy is. He's an internet troll. In the guise of a big J journalist, this holier-than-thou joke of a journalist in reality, is nothing more than an internet troll. What he is doing is he is trying to fire you up. He's trying to goad you into a reaction, and too many people in the dog nation are giving him exactly what he wants, which is why I have been very resistant, very hesitant to bring it up on this show because I do not want to feed into that. What better way to generate clicks and create engagement than riling up one of the most passionate fan bases in the country, the fan base that is on top of the world, a high-profile fan base, because you know not only are you going to fire them up, but when they get fired up, it's going to catch the attention of the national college football audience because Georgia is at the top of the college football mountain. If this was Georgia Tech, like nobody would care in the grand scheme of the college football world. Nobody would freaking care because Georgia Tech is irrelevant. You want to Poke the 800-pound gorilla because you know the 800-pound gorilla is going to fight back. And everyone's got their eyes on the 800-pound gorilla because it's a freaking 800-pound gorilla. And they know, obviously, that they're going to take a bunch of shots from the UGA fan base. But again, they do not care. The way they're looking at it is the old cliche of there's no such thing as bad press, right? Bad press is press. It means people are talking about you. It means you're getting attention. It means you're staying somewhat relevant when otherwise no one's paying attention to you. Because to be honest, guys, before he wrote these articles, did any of you even know who Alan Judd was? Had you ever heard that name? I know I hadn't. The dude has created a, a brand for himself off of exploiting a tragedy and then following that up with highly, highly reckless conjecture and speculation about alleged sexual assault. 
So that's one of the things at the core of this. At the core of this, it's about money. They want attention because they want clicks. They want clicks because that's how they make money in the modern media world. To me, that's pretty obvious. But I also don't think that is a complete explanation of what we have seen here. And I say that because the tone of this, not just the fact that they've written articles about it, and I'm not even going to call it investigative journalism because it's not. We we know this. It's simply not. It's he, The dude's written editorials, essentially, and then who was like uh, D. Orlando Ledbetter. I mean, again, I haven't, read, I haven't read the agency in a long time. That dude used to cover the Falcons. I don't know. Maybe he's just a general sports columnist now. I don't know, but I was surprised when I just, I mean, again, I didn't read the article or the column, I guess it was, because again, I don't give them clicks, but I saw the headline and then I saw that Judd had retweeted it, which is, again, dude, like this guy's trying to act like he's Mr. Mr. Integrity, Mr. Journalism, Big J Journalist. And it's like, dude, you realize when you retweet a column about the story that you allegedly broke, you are in effect endorsing what is said in that column. So that completely obliterates any sort of objectivity that you claim to have in the situation. I'm just reporting the facts. Dude, get out of here with that. You are not just reporting the facts. You are making up the facts. You are speculating as to what the facts might be. You are drawing wild conclusions and recklessly smearing 18-year-olds in the process. So yeah, the tone of this has gotten very aggressive. And it's, to be quite honest, it's gotten very personal. So when I look at that and I see the tone that this has taken, yes, it's about money. At the core of it, it is about money. But I think there's a subplot here. I think there's something underscoring all of this and there's a strong undercurrent of, of something else here. And that something else to me is politics. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to put it out there. I, I, I do not talk about politics on this show, and I, I really am not going to do that here. Politics are all around us all the time. They're omnipresent. I, I don't want that to be what this show is. I want this show to be a way to get away from all of that, a place where we can just enjoy our shared passion together. But I cannot escape the feeling that there's a political undercurrent to this. And this is this is me speculating. I'll be honest. I'm not going to be like Alan Judd. I will tell you that I'm speculating here. I, this is these are just my opinions. These are just my thoughts. I feel like Judd. You know how he views. Think about how he looks at himself. Right? Like he looks in the mirror and says, "Oh my God, man, I'm saving the world one day at a time." Obviously, do not know the guy, but the impression I've developed of him over these past couple of months or so is that he's just a, a, a smug, self righteous dude. Right? That's the feeling I get here, and so I. I'm looking at this situation and I see a guy that looks at Kirby Smart and sees this huge contract he just signed in the wake of Georgia's first national championship in 41 years. He, I'm sure, thought that was ridiculous, right? No, he's not alone in that. Uh, but he sees that. He feels like, you know, like a lot of people do, man, the coach is making all this money. These poor kids aren't making anything. These guys are just exploiting these kids for their own personal gain. And now on top of that, they're protecting, they're covering up sexual assault. And I think he probably really believes that. I think he does. And I think what happened here is that the tragic deaths of Devin Willick and, and Chandler LaCroix gave him a license to pursue this. And not only did it give him a license to pursue it legitimately, it gave him the pretext for people to buy into it because we like we, we can't argue against what happened with, with Devin and Chandler. I mean, that was tragic and it should never have happened. There were things that went on that should not have gone on 
and it costs two young people their lives, very tragically. That warranted investigation. Again, I have no problem with you presenting the facts. What I have a problem with is when you present facts that are completely irrelevant to the case, like, oh yeah, they were at Topper's, like, okay. The fact that it was a UGA leased car and all those things and that she had a blood alcohol content of whatever and she should have returned the car, all those facts, like those things should be reported because we need to make sure that these things do not happen again. So when this terrible tragic incident happened and people are looking at the University of Georgia and saying like, what's going on here? And then you have after that and the aftermath of that you have all all these stories coming out about all of our all these different guys getting arrested or cops letting them go off with just warnings after speeding all the drag racing stuff which again I don't have any issue with you just reporting the facts that is your job but when you throw out salacious headlines and you exaggerate what's going on and you start drawing wild and reckless conclusions within what is ostensibly an investigative journalism piece like there's a problem there, but that's not what people care about. They see the headlines and they know, oh yeah, Georgia had this really bad incident with his drag racing case, right? These two kids died. So that must mean everything else that the AJC is reporting about Georgia, it all must be true. They're not going to look that deeply into it. We are a first impression society, right? We do not have a collective attention span more than like, what, four seconds these days, it seems like. No one's going to take the time to actually read the articles. No one's going to take the time to actually think critically about the situation. They are just simply too eager for the, the sexy story. That's what people want. They want the drama. They don't care about context. Screw context. That's not something we pay attention to in the modern world. We just want the salacious headlines. We want the drama. And the AJC is furnishing that, man. They have become nothing more than tabloid fodder. That's what people want, and that's what they're giving them, and that's how they're making money. But with Judd in particular, again, my opinion here. You can totally disagree with me on this. I look at what he's done and the way that he has covered these stories, and I see a lot of virtue signaling. This is a guy who feels like he has the eternal truths, right? He is the journalist. He's protecting everyone out there. He knows deep in his soul, deep within the fiber of his being, that Kirby Smart is covering up for all these sexual assaulters, even though there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. But he, in his mind, he is convinced that he knows the truth. And so if that means he has to cut some corners and violate some journalistic ethics and principles in the process to make sure everyone understands that and sees the truth that he knows so deeply? Well, then that's just minor details. I think he fundamentally sees himself as good and Kirby Smart as evil. I cannot tell you why he's developed that impression of Kirby Smart. It's rather irrational if you ask me, but there's nothing rational about this. If you were one of those guys, those self-righteous, holier-than-thou virtue signalers, you have to have a villain. You know the old cliche, there's no good without evil, right? If there's no evil for you to fight, then you can't be the virtuous one. The virtuous one that stands above the fray, which is what he so clearly wants to be. And Kirby Smart is just the convenient villain. The leader of not just the biggest program in the state, but the leader of the program who is at the apex of the college ball landscape right now. What bigger villain could there possibly be for him to take down? And to me, that's that, that. there's an undercurrent of that here. Again, I go back to it. Money is the driving force behind it. But the tone and the way that this has been framed, there has to be something more to it. And that's just my personal opinion as to what it is. I think this is a guy that's, that's 
thinks that he is the virtuous one and he is the purveyor of truth and it's his job to tell us all the truth and if he has to cut some corners to get there to take down this evil force that Kirby Smart is, then by God, he'll do it. So that's where I am on this. Um, probably be the last you'll hear me comment on it. I mean, if, I guess if something else is published that needs to be addressed and you guys want me to address it, I'll come on here and do it for you guys. Again, show for, of, and by the people. But I... I, I, I want to talk football, man. Like, I, like we're, we're so close to the season, man. I want to be talking about position battles. I want to be talking about opponents. I want to be doing Scout the Enemy episodes. I don't want to be talking about the freaking AJC. But if you guys want me to, I'll do it. I'll do it. But uh, for now, I think I've said all I need to say on the topic. All right, guys, let's keep this thing going. Let's get to some actual football, right? Does that sound good to you guys? I mean, that, that's what I want to talk about. So let, let's move in that direction. So let's go to Joey's question here. I love this one, man. Thank you, Joey. Joey asks, what game on the schedule is this year's Missouri game? In other words, a very close game or loss that absolutely no one saw coming. Great question, Joey. To me, it's obvious. It's Auburn. It's 100% Auburn. And here's why. Number one, we're not losing at home. That's not going to happen. South Carolina, if it was, if this game was in Columbia, yeah, maybe I'd say South Carolina, but it's not. It's in Athens. We're not losing to South Carolina at home. We're not losing Kentucky at home. We're not going to lose to Missouri at home. Ole Miss, that is an interesting game. The, the more and more I dive into Ole Miss, I'm most recently we've been watching Ole Miss and Alabama's game from last year. I'm getting ready to dive into some Ole Miss stuff here. Getting ready for that Scott in the Enemy episode. The more I dive into Ole Miss, man, the more I like this football team. If that game was in Oxford, I mean, we're still the better team, um, but that could definitely be a, a tricky spot. But here's the thing. I think Ole Miss has more respect nationally and within the conference than what Missouri did last year. I, I don't think there's a parallel there. I really don't. I mean, Missouri, absolutely no one saw that one coming. And I don't think that anyone right now thinks that Ole Miss is going to give us much of a game. But Again, I think there's more respect for that team nationally than there was for Missouri. I think people would be less surprised if Ole Miss gave us a close game this year than they were about what we saw in Como last season. So I'm going to throw Ole Miss out for that reason. Tennessee, same thing. Like Everyone knows that's the toughest game on our schedule, at least on paper going into the season. Like That that would not be a surprise if they gave us a close game there. At Georgia Tech, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, obviously if that game was close, that would be more surprising. I just don't see that happening. So I think Auburn is the right answer for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's on the road. Just like the Missouri game was last year. Again, I don't think anyone is going to beat us at home. I don't think anyone's going to cut it even close at home, to be honest with you. So it's a game that has to be on the road. If a team's going to sneak up on us like that, I think it has to be on the road. And so what does that leave? That leaves us with at Auburn, at Vandy, and then at Georgia Tech. I'd, Vandy's definitely not going to do it. Vandy doesn't have the talent. Tech doesn't have the talent right now. So what does that leave us with? That leaves us with Auburn. And I told you guys last week when I did my schedule ranking, I had Auburn as the second most difficult game on the schedule. And I got some pushback on that from a couple of you guys out there. And I respect that. I understand that. You, you look at Auburn on the service, you're like, man, like this team has been terrible the past couple of years. They completely dropped the ball with recruiting under Brian Harson. They don't have the talent. And I would say that's true if they had not loaded up from the transfer report this year. They absolutely did that. I would also be less inclined to say Auburn is the answer to this question if they had not gone and gotten Peyton Thorne from Michigan State. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Peyton Thorne is some elite quarterback. He's not. You know, I, I put out a tweet on, on July 4th. You guys are out having fun, frolicking around the pool, cooking out with friends. I was here grinding the Auburn tape, getting ready for the Scout the Enemy episode that I'll be putting out for you guys early next week. And part of that, I mean, I, I'd been 
working on that for a long time. Not didn't just start on the fourth, but I just kind of put some final touches on it. And one of the things I was really digging into was some Michigan State tape. I want to go back and, and watch more of Peyton Thorne. I've seen a couple of his games the past couple of years, but I haven't really dived that deeply into Michigan State because like I don't care about Michigan State. And he's not an elite quarterback. He doesn't have elite physical talent. He's not an elite processor, but he is stable. He is solid. And that's something they did not have last year. Robbie Asher was capable of pulling out the wow play with his legs, but he was an absolute nightmare as a passer. And maybe he's would have progressed some this year, probably progressed some, but dude, he had such a long way to go. I don't know if progressing some was, was going to get the job done. So if you throw in Peyton Thorne, who is at least a competent quarterback, got some really good receiver options from the portal. They have Jarquez Hunter back as their top running back. One of their better offensive lines that they've had in a couple years. Defensively, they're still not elite on that side of the ball, but they're good enough to at least make it a close game if we do not come to play. And that's the big if, guys. Like The real answer is probably like no one. No one's going to sneak up on us like Missouri did last year. The only way that happens is if we allow it to happen. If we come into a game and kind of sleepwalk through it like we did in Columbia, Missouri last year, when our opponent is fired up at home and they're firing on all cylinders and they jump out to an early lead and take advantage of our lazy sleepwalking type attitude, that's what's going to take for a team to either A, beat us when no one expected it to happen or even make the game close like Missouri did last year. And I think Auburn is the team that kind of fits that bill more than anyone else on our schedule this year because I don't think most people expect that much out of Auburn. I mean, their win total is is six or six and a half depending on what betting service you're using. So the odds makers see them as basically a 500 caliber team and no one expects the two-time defending national champion who's going to be the odds-on favorite to win the national championship for a third straight year to go to Auburn and lose to a team that the odds makers see as a 500 type team this year. No one's going to expect that. No one's going to see that coming if it does indeed be a closer game. And here's why I think Auburn is a candidate to make it a closer game. Again, I think that we're better than Auburn, significantly better than Auburn, and that game should not be close. But the game against Missouri last year in Columbia also should not have been close. We were also far more talented than they were, and we all know how that game turned out. The biggest thing Auburn will have going for them is the location of the game, the stadium. Jordan-Hare is going to be absolutely on fire. You have the two-time defending national champion who will probably number one in the country, almost certainly be number one in the country when they come rolling into town. And on top of that, it is one of your two most bitterly hated arrivals in the country. And you have a new head coach, all this new excitement in the program. You think you're trending upwards. That place is going to be out of control. If you've been in any of the Auburn games the past couple years, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm talking about the Georgia-Auburn games the past couple years. You know what I'm talking about, whether it was 2017, whether it was 2019, whether it was 2021. That stadium was rocking each of those three seasons. And I've been to Georgia-Auburn games where it wasn't that great of a crowd. But guys, the circumstances are going to line up for this to be a bananas crowd. And that's fine. Like that's that's kind of what happens when when we roll into town now. Like we get the what used to be the Bama treatment. It's the Georgia treatment now, right? We're gonna get everyone's best shot. We are not gonna be taken by surprise when it comes to the stadium being a loud, tough, rowdy, raucous environment. Like we we know the drill, right? But it still doesn't make it an easy environment to play in. And you also throw in the fact that this is gonna be Carson Beck's first start at a true road environment, and that's something I, I think Carson's up for the challenge. But we don't know 
And I also have a lot of respect for Hugh Freeze. Say what you want about the hookers and, and whatnot. All, that's all fair. But in terms of calling an offense and putting an offense together, I know he's not calling the offense. I know Phil Montgomery's calling the offense, the old Tulsa head coach. But Phil Montgomery's a good offensive mind as well. They, him and Freeze are kind of of the same mind. He's going to have his fingerprints all over that offense, just like Kirby Smart has his fingerprints all over our defense. And I think that he is a good enough offensive mind to scheme up some things to give them some shots, like to, to maybe like hit some big plays and and kind of stay in the game early. And if they can stay in the game early, like Missouri did, things could just snowball, which is exactly what happened back in 2017. Now we were better than Auburn was in 2017, just like we're better than them this year. Now obviously the, the margins are much bigger this year. Like we have much more talent, it's a much wider margin in our town, Auburn's town, this year than there was in 2017. But like we saw on a neutral site how much better we were than Auburn in the SEC championship game a couple of weeks after that loss, right? Well, this year, yes, the margins are bigger, but we've seen what happened when a more talented Georgia team got behind early at Auburn, and that crowd got crazy, got wild with bananas, and things started to snowball and just got out of control. So again, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but if I have to look at our schedule and pick one game that could be the the surprise game, the Missouri game from last year that no one sees coming, no one sees as a game that we might lose or a game that is going to be far closer than it should be, I think Auburn is the one you've got to look at. All right, next question. Let's go with a question from Sam. You always appreciate it, Sam. Um, and Sam, I, I don't know the answer to this question. Let me read it first, but I don't know, man. But Sam asks, what position group can we least afford injuries at this season to make a playoff run? And Sam, I thought about this question long and hard when you sent this one in, man. And I don't know that I have a really good answer for you. And I think that's a good thing, right? Because I think we are so deep right now at really every position. Now, we're deeper at some positions than others, but we are so deep, and not just deep, but deep with quality players that I don't know if there's a spot where like, if we have an injury that we're just devastated. And that's just a beautiful place to be in, man. That's such a testament to Kirby Smart and his staff and what they've been able to do on the recruiting front. Just stacking class after class after class and this is the end result. When you stack top three class on top of top three class on top of top three class on top of top three class, you have a roster full of elite players where you can weather really an injury to almost any position, even an injury to some of your best players. Like, God forbid, I don't even want to put this out there in the universe, knock on wood, but like if Brock Bowers went down, like that would be a blow because he is just different. He's special. I mean, Brock might be the best player in the history of Georgia football, honestly, before it's all said and done. He very well could be. But then you have Oscar Delp, and you've got Lawson Lucky, and you've got Pierce Sperlin. And it's like, okay, yeah, those guys aren't Brock Bowers, but they're all really good, really talented players. We'll be okay-ish. The receiver, I, I think we're really deep at receiver. Uh, in the defensive backfield, like, you know, if Kamari Lashner went down, that would suck because he's the one dude out there at corner that really does have a lot of experience. But we have so much talent behind him at the cornerback spot that I still feel like we'd be okay. Same thing at safety, same thing at inside linebacker. I mean, we, we told you earlier in the week, Smile Mon is not going to play the first couple of weeks, at least the first couple of weeks. And I'm not even remotely sweating it because I think our inside linebacker room is probably the healthiest room in the entire team. So yeah, I love Smile. I think he's awesome. I think he's a potential first round type talent, but I mean, we'll be fine. Offensive line, the same thing. I mean, if Amarius Mims, God forbid, goes down, or if Ernest Green goes down, like we've got we've got Austin Blasky, who's probably a starting caliber tackle. We're, we're okay there. If you got three guys, you're in good shape. So I don't know really where the position is. Where it's like if somebody goes down, like dude, we are in trouble. I don't think that position exists, honestly. So I'm gonna take your question literally here. 
what position group can we least afford injuries at? So where are we like the least deep, I guess? And I think the answer I'm going to go with here is center. I don't want to say offensive line in general because we do have a lot of really talented guys that are just waiting their turn, whether it's Micah Morris or Dylan Fairchild, Austin Blasky. Like we have all these guys that are just waiting their turn and they're going to be great when they get their opportunities. But I don't know that we have that surefire guy at center. And also, the reality is Cedric Van Pran is the best center in the country. I think he'd be a first-round draft pick if he has a good year this year, which I almost certainly think he will. But when you're talking about a guy who has started over 30 consecutive games for you, if he goes down, not only are you losing his talent, he's an extraordinarily talented guy, but we have some really talented players behind him. But it's the combination of the talent, the experience, and the leadership that he brings to the table when he's out there on the field. I think if you lose a guy like Cedric Van Pram, that's a tough blow for your team. Though know, you have a lot of talented options behind him, those guys don't have the experience and they don't have the leadership qualities that Ced does. So I think he is a huge, huge piece for this team. I think him coming back was one of the more underrated stories of the entire offseason for us. I don't think that's getting talked about nearly enough. So if I'm looking at one specific position, I think center might be that spot for me just because of how much respect I have for SVP. And also think about we're, we're breaking in a new quarterback. It's going to be Carson Beck, almost certainly in my opinion, and we know he's played some. He's gotten some garbage time duty, but he hasn't been the guy. And so when you're out there in a situation like that with a new starting quarterback, you want to have that center to lean on and kind of be that that voice out there. And Cedric is, is that guy. Like He is that dude for us on this team. And if you lose him, not only you lose the talent, but you lose that leadership. You lose that voice out there on the field and in the huddle. So I'm going to go with Cedric Van Pran at center right now. All right, let's get to another question here. And let's go to the question from Ty. Thanks, Ty. Appreciate it, man. Ty asks, who is the one quarterback on an opposing team that we should be most worried about this season? Man, this is another tough one because I don't think there is a clear and obvious answer here. Wait, of course there is. It's got to be Graham Mertz, obviously. Nah, obviously not. That dude sucks. I think I've got this down to two names. I think I'm going to look at Devin Leary at Kentucky. If he can stay healthy, the dude is a really good quarterback, but he hasn't been healthy for the majority of his career. The one year he was able to stay healthy, 2021, the dude put up massive numbers, 3,400 yards, 35 touchdowns, only five interceptions. I think it's a really explosive and underrated wide receiver group to work with. I think Liam Cohen is going to do wonders with him, again, if he can stay healthy. So he's certainly one to consider. The other name to look at is whoever wins the Ole Miss quarterback job. If it's Jackson Dart, Dart was good-ish for Ole Miss last year, but he's a talented guy. Don't forget, he was a five-star guy coming out of high school, went to USC, then transferred out when they made the coaching chains, ends up in Oxford with Lane Kiffin, and had a good, solid first year as a starter. But Lane went out and got some competition for Dart this year, brought in Spencer Sanders, who was like a four-year starter at Oklahoma State. And Sanders, a lot like Dart, was talented and really flashed a strong skill set at times, was highly, highly inconsistent as a passer. But Sanders is a more dynamic threat with his legs. And that's something that is a critical piece of Lane Kiffin's offense. And Dart is a willing runner, and they ran him a lot last year. But he's not a dynamic throughout this leg. Spencer Sanders is. But there's just uncertainty there right now as to who's going to win the job. I think it's going to be Dart. Honestly, I'm just baffled as to why Spencer Sanders transferred there. It's weird to me that he went there. Like This is your final year of collegiate eligibility, and you went to a situation where you have absolutely no guarantees whatsoever that you're going to be the guy. Like You would think 
a guy going into his final year of collegiate eligibility is going to find a spot where he is the undisputed guy. And that's just not the case with Ole Miss. He might win the job, but there's a very real chance that he does not. Because Jackson Dart, the incumbent starter, is still there. So due to that kind of general uncertainty there with the Ole Miss quarterback situation, I'm going to default to Devin Leary from Kentucky right now. And no, it's not Spencer Rattler. For those of you wondering why I haven't mentioned Spencer Rattler, the dude's just way, way, way too inconsistent. In fact, he's actually pretty consistently average, if anything. So no, it's not Spencer Rattler. All right, guys, we got a couple more, so let's close things out here today. And the next question comes from Keith. Appreciate it, man. Keith asks, with so many recruits already committed to Georgia, who are the few remaining guys that you feel like we have to land? Thanks for the question, Keith. That's a good one, man. Honestly, though, I don't know if there are too many guys out there right now that I feel like we have to land. Because again, our roster right now is in such great shape that I don't know if there are any prospects that are like make or break prospects for us. We just aren't in that situation right now as a program. There are programs out there who do not have the overall roster depth that we do that can't really afford to miss on some of these guys because it just sets back their rebuild. But we're in a position right now where we can swing for the fences where we can take shots at these big-time five-star guys. And if we miss, oh well, we'll just go to the next guy, because the next guy is just about as highly rated as the other guy. So in reality, I just don't know that there is really anybody out there that we have to land. So Keith, I hope you don't mind, my friend. I'm just going to put my own little twist on this, and I'm just going to slightly change this to, who do you feel like the guys that are closest to being players that we have to land the rest of the way in this cycle. And the first spot I'm going to look at is inside linebacker. Now, I don't know if this is a true have to land position because we just, because I believe that we just signed the best inside linebacker class in the history of Georgia football. But you want to keep that going, right? You want to keep that trend going on into the future. You want to keep that room healthy. It's just, I think it's the healthiest room on the entire team right now. But you want to keep it that way. Because remember, there was, there was a time not that long ago where outside linebacker, edge rusher, was the healthiest position on the team. And then all of a sudden, fast forward a couple years later, and now it's one of the weakest positions on the team. At least it was last year. So you don't want to run the risk of that happening at inside linebacker, which has been a really key position in our defense over the past couple years. And it's been a really big part of our success. So right now, we have really one guy committed at that position. It's Demarcus Riddick, who is a five-star prospect from Alabama. I'm just going to tell you guys, don't be shocked when Demarcus Riddick decommits. He's going to. I mean, that's what's going to happen, guys. His mom, a couple weeks ago, announced a final commitment date, even though he's already been committed to Georgia for a while now. He's going to go to one of the in-state schools, probably Alabama. Auburn's making a push. He's going to decommit. Auburn or Alabama, whoever signs him, is going to make a big deal about it and say, oh, like, we're just flipping guys from Georgia. Just be prepared for that, guys. It's going to happen. He's a really good player, but he's not almost certainly not going to come to Georgia. I mean, Things can change in recruiting. I always say that. But right now, I feel very strongly based on what I'm hearing that he's not going to come to Georgia. So we need to find at least two guys at that position. Fortunately for us, we have a lot to sell there. Now, the one thing that's hurting us there at that spot is playing time because we are so, so stacked in that room right now. But there are two guys right now that we are in very, very good position with. Actually, there's more than two guys that we're in very good position with. But then the top two guys on our board are five-star Justin Williams And then another guy who's a high four-star, but he's a really talented guy in his own right. His name is Chris Jones. Williams, 
made his official visit here to Athens in June. He goes to the same high school that Joseph Jonah Ajanye, who just committed to Georgia tonight, actually right now while I'm recording this. That's why I haven't talked about it yet because it's happening right now. So he's got a teammate that's committed to Georgia. He's high on us. Really, it's it's essentially down to us in Oregon is what it sounds like with Justin Williams based off what I am hearing. So he's a guy that we need to close on. I really, really want to close on him because if you're going to lose your Rick, you're going to lose a five-star inside linebacker. Let's replace him with another five-star who actually is probably a better player. But we do need more than one guy in that room. Chris Jones is a guy that I feel very strongly about right now that's going to ultimately commit to Georgia maybe by the end of this month. I've been telling you guys for a couple of weeks now that July is is going to be a big time month for us on the recruiting trail. Chris Jones is part of that equation for me, at least based off what I've been told over the past week or two. So I think those are two guys that we should all feel pretty good about right now. I mean, I feel better about Jones than I do Williams. The Williams is a little bit more touch and go, but we're in his final two. We're in his top group. So we're in good shape there, but we need to we need to close it. Like we need to close the deal with those guys and uh, and just get that that linebacker class in the bag. And I'll give you guys one more name. This is a defensive lineman. And I'm going defensive line here, not because we don't have some good players signed. We really do. I mean, Jonah Johnye is incredibly physically gifted, guys. Now, he's a five tech that can kind of slide inside situationally. He'll probably play at about 280, 285 in college. He's not a true interior three tech defensive lineman, but in obvious passing situations, third down packages, he can slide inside. He has that kind of ability, that kind of athleticism and give us some pass rush there. So I really want to see us land a big time interior defensive lineman. And the one I had my eyes set on, who was number one on my top five most wanted list, a dude by the name of Justin Scott, just recently within the past week committed to Ohio State. That sucks. He's gone. Really good player. Ohio State got a really good one there. So the next one on the list for me is a guy out of California, a guy out of Matter Day named Auden Braylon. Really, really talented player. He's He was always kind of right there with Justin Scott for me. I felt Scott was a a slight notch better than him, but there's not a massive gap there. Braylon is an awesome talent in his own right. 6'5", 290, 300 pounds, depending on on what service you look at. And the 247 composite rings, which takes into account all the different recruiting services out there and what their rankings are, he's the number 38 player nationally, which is a fringe five-star. He just is a couple of spots away from being a five-star prospect. But 247 Sports themselves, just with their individual rankings, have him as a top 10 player nationally, number six overall and the number two defense lineman in the country. So there's a little bit of disparity there in how he's being rated by some of these different services, but most of the services have him rated very, very highly. 247 Sports is the outlier right now, having him inside the top 10. On three has him number 61 nationally. ESPN has him 45. Rivals is the other outlier at 102. So I think this guy... All in all, he, he the composite probably has it about right for him, but like ratings or whatever, stars or whatever. I mean, they're it, it, they're good to talk about. They they give you an indication of a guy's overall talent level. Sure, they do that. They're pretty they're fairly accurate in their in their predictive ability. But watch the tape, guys. Watch the tape, and if you watch this tape, you see a powerful, explosive athlete on the interior of the defensive line, and that's the kind of guy that we need to restock our defensive line with. You can never have enough of those guys. Inside linebacker has been a really important position for us, but there's no position on our defense that's more important than defensive tackle. That is so critical to us being able to stop the run with even numbers so that we can consistently play with a too high safety shell and not make ourselves vulnerable to explosive plays in the pass game. How did we beat Tennessee last year? We shut their freaking run down with six men in the box. How do you do that? You have defensive linemen that wreck games. And Braylon has that game-wrecking ability. So he's a guy that I really, really do want to land here because I think we have some good defensive linemen right now in this class. I'm really excited about all those guys. 
but he would be that cherry on the top, man. Like he is that game record Jalen Carter-esque type guy that you want on the interior of the defensive line. I think Jordan Hall, the guy we got in this in this last class, can be that guy too, but you want the next guy. You want that entire defensive line to be stocked. You want to be able to have Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt and Jalen Carter all on the same defensive line. That's what you want. And adding a guy like Braylon to the mix, that's what that's going to give you. All right, two more here, guys. We got a question from Tommy. Tommy asks, Commitment numbers are getting high for this early in the cycle. How many do the dogs sign this year? Good question, Tommy. So by my very unofficial calculations, I kind of just went through this really quickly today, so somebody can double check my math in this, but based on my calculations, we have 89 scholarship players currently right now going into fall camp. Now we've got to get down to 85 somehow, some way, somehow we will. I have no doubt. Kirby Smart's got his magic ways. Whether you're going to gray shirt guys, green shirt guys, whatever you got to do, he'll get it done. It'll happen. But if you're projecting forward to next year, how many scholarships are we going to have available? How many spots are we going to have available? Well, if you look at the expected attrition, depends on like who do you think is going to potentially declare early for the draft like Carson Beck he's one of those guys like it, he could definitely declare early for the draft he has a big year but is he going to have that big year that depends on what you think I think personally he will so I'm counting him in my calculations I think we're going to have like anywhere between like 22 to 24 guys leave the program after next year whether it's from exhausting their collegiate eligibility or declaring early for the NFL draft now that's not talking about transfers. That does not include transfers. So if you throw transfers in there, there's always going to be some sort of transfer attrition. So I think we could feasibly have like 30-ish scholarships open, but don't for a second think that's going to limit Kirby Smart to only 30 scholarships. Like if we just have 30 scholarships available, don't think for a second that means that we're only going to sign 30. Because in this past class, the 2023 class, we signed more than we actually had scholarships available. Kirby's going to have to work some magic and move some things around and do that sleight of hand, which he will. But just because we only have 30 or 31 or 29 or 28, however many scholarships it is that are available, that doesn't mean that we're just going to sign those guys. You have to plan for attrition. Like right now, Kirby does not know who is going to transfer. He has a better idea than we do, but he has no idea right now who is going to come to him after the season and say, coach, I'm transferring. So it's really hard right now for coaches to manage rosters in the age of the transfer portal and NIL on top of that. So that's why like you see Kirby Smart in last year's class, the 2023 class, sign more guys than he actually had available scholarships for because he had to prepare for the possibility that there were going to, and not even the possibility, the likelihood that there are going to be a number of players that are currently on the roster taking up scholarships that are going to transfer out and thereby open up scholarships for these other guys. So there are just so many moving parts. Here's one thing I will tell you Kirby Smart will not do. Kirby Smart will not allow his program to go into a season with less than 85 scholarship players. That is simply not going to happen. So if that means he has to be overly aggressive recruiting and sign more guys than he probably should just to make sure that we have at least 85 scholarship guys, he's going to do that. The days of like, you know, Mark Rick having less than 70 scholarship players on on his roster, that will never, ever happen under Kirby Smart. So he is, I think, going to err on the side of oversigning than undersigning. The reality is, though, no one knows that number. I don't think Kirby even knows the number right now because, again, he does not know who is going to end up transferring after the season. He has no way to know that right now. He might have an inkling, but there's always a surprise or two, right? You didn't see one coming. So if you look at the number of players that we are almost certainly going to lose and you add in the expected transfer attrition to that, I think that we're going to sign at least 30 players and it would not shock me to see us go one or two over that 31-32. That is admittedly some very rough math, 
But again, I, I am operating on the assumption that Kirby Smart is going to err on the side of oversigning as opposed to undersigning. All right, guys, last one here, and we saved a fun one for last year. Trevor asks a, a great question. We've gotten questions like this before, but we haven't gotten one in a while. So I'm very excited to talk about this because I, I love this kind of stuff. But Trevor asks, under Kirby Smart, we've seen Georgia schedule good Power 5 non-conference games. Who is a Power 5 program you'd love Georgia to schedule that is not already on future schedules? Awesome question, man. I have a long, long list of places that I want to go see Georgia play. Here's what I will say. I do not have any interest in Georgia playing another neutral site game ever again other than the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. We do not need to play any more neutral site games. When you have an annual neutral site game on your schedule, you do not need to do that to your fans. I do not care that you make a little bit more money from that game. You already use that justification to keep the game in Jacksonville, all right? And I'm fine with that. It's a, tra- it's a tradition. I'm cool with that. I get it. But you do not need to, to do that to your fans, to your season ticket holders who pay big bucks for these games and put some of these big high-profile games in Atlanta or in Charlotte. Like, I don't want it. I don't want that ever again. I want to go experience these other campuses and these other game day environments. Do something for your fans, please. But I'll give you a top five. How's that work, Trevor? So at the top of my list has got to be Michigan, right? Ohio State is on one of our future schedules about 10 years down the road. So they would be on there. They would not be at number one. Michigan would be at number one for me. The idea of going to the big house, Ann Arbor, never been to Ann Arbor, has a great reputation as an awesome college town. It'd be a big time matchup between Georgia and Michigan. That would be an absolute killer Power Five non-conference matchup. I mean, that'd be a, a dream trip for me. The, the trip to South Bend was like a once-in-a-lifetime dream trip for me, although like South Bend itself, not a super great town, but it was just fun to experience the, the campus, the game day environment, the stadium, and obviously the way that game went down, just an absolutely unbelievable experience. I want something like that again. I think Mission could give us something similar to that. Number two, I'm going to stick in the Big Ten. Honestly, most of these Big Ten schools would be on my list. Because I just never really, I've never experienced a Big Ten game day environment, and I, I desperately, desperately want to. Uh, Wisconsin. I know Wisconsin's not a power program; they're a good, consistent program, but they're not like a, a Michigan, Ohio State type power program. But Madison, never been there. It has been a essentially a lifelong dream of mine to go to Madison, Wisconsin for a college football game and experience that environment, jump around inside Camp Randall and just you know the the bar restaurant scene. You know when you t- hear. People talk about the, the best college towns in the country. Athens is always at or near the very top of the list. Madison's also there. It's like one of the Athens' rivals, right? So I want to go see what it's like. How does it compare to Athens? That's definitely very high on my list. I got that at number two. Um, number three, I'm going to go out west, and I'm going to go to Washington. Two schools out in the Pacific Northwest. got Washington and Oregon. Washington, that's just a, a really cool place to go for a game. I mean, Seattle's an awesome town. Never been to that stadium and the setting there literally right on Lake Washington. I mean, it's in the background. It's just an unbelievable setting. I would absolutely love to go to a game there. I think that would not only make for a great game day environment, but just one hell of a trip to go out to Seattle. Uh, In Oregon, very much the same reasons. It would just make for an awesome trip. I was devastated. I was so excited. Years ago, we had that game scheduled. And then McGarity canceled that. Or, you know, for whatever reason, the plans fell through, whether it was us, whether it was Oregon. But didn't get to go there. And I was very, very excited about that. I was heartbroken when that game was canceled. So I still have my heart set on someday, somehow going to see Georgia play inside Alton Stadium in Eugene, Oregon. That's that's a huge one for me. And the number five on my list, this might surprise some of you, 
because they're not a power program now. Once upon a time they were, but their fans care so much and it's such a big deal. And the game day environment has to be spectacular. I want to go see Georgia play Nebraska. I like energy. I like great game day vibes. And again, I've never been there, never been to Lincoln, certainly not for a game for any reason. I've never been to Lincoln, Nebraska, but I've always heard great things. And I just, you know, when you watch games and, you know, and they kind of show the scenes pregame and kind of show the fans tailgating, I, I want to go there, man. Those people care. I respect that. I respect passion. And while no, they have not been good recently of late, that's still a, a traditional power in the college ball landscape. So I think that would be a fantastic game. I mean, is it a, as cool of a town as Ann Arbor or Seattle or Madison? No, but I think it probably has its own charm. And it's something I'm very, very intrigued by. So I definitely want to go see Georgia play the Huskers up there in Lincoln. And I have a lot more on my list, guys, but I'm going to limit it to five here because I got to get out of here. It's getting late. Your boy's tired. Got to get to bed. But thank you guys for being here today. I hope you enjoyed this. I want to get this one last mailback episode in before we really, really hit our preseason preview stride. So thank you to everybody who sent in questions. And if, if you didn't get a question today, guys, if you didn't see it until it was too late, send them in. I promise you we will do another mailback episode. We'll definitely get one at least a week or two before the season, but keep those coming in. And if we get a lot of questions, we'll try to work some into some of these other shows that we have. We're not going to ignore you. I promise you. If you send them in, we're not going to ignore you. We might save them uh, for a week or two, but we will get to them. So send them in, guys. Anything that comes to your mind, hit us up, and we will make sure to cover it here on the podcast. But have a fantastic weekend, guys. I'll be back early next week with the next edition of our Scout of the Enemy series. This one focusing on the Auburn Tigers. So I'll see you guys back here in a couple days. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.